Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning, everyone. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Joining me in the studio today is Matt LaRocca, who's the artistic advisor and project conductor for the VSO. I am so psyched. You have no idea. And joining us on the phone is Daniel Houghton, who's the animation studio director at Middlebury College. Um, Matt, Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. This is, I am so honored to have you both on here. I love the VSO. Um, we're going to be talking about something very unique, I think, a night at the movies. And um, let me just give you a little background of, of Matt and Daniel. Matt is a composer, performer, and educator. He is the artistic advisor and project director with the Vermont Symphony Orchestra, teaches theory and composition at UVM, and is the musical director of the Champlain Philharmonic Orchestra. He is oh, – good grief, Matt. He is, <laughs> he is also the director of Music Comp, an organization that teaches composition to hundreds of students throughout Vermont and the United States. How do you schedule your life? It's not easy. It's, it's not easy. Good thing you're on the young side here. And Daniel teaches animation and runs the animation studio at Middlebury College. His animations have been featured with numerous entities to include the Huffington Post, the Suzanne Animation Festival in Amsterdam, the Vermont International Film Festival, Port Townsend International Film Festival in Washington, and the Hong Kong Art Center, and many, but I feel so like, what do I do with my life? You guys are great. Uh-huh. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Matt, um, could you talk a little bit about your position at the VSO, UVM and Champlain? Um, it goes <clears throat> on forever. Yeah, so uh, um, for, with the Vermont Symphony, I, I love my job with them, and one of the things that I get to focus on is I work with a lot of our non-traditional shows and concerts. Um, so I run our, a chamber music series called Jukebox, which is mm. uh, usually a string quartet. We used to be an arts riot, but now our sort of home base is higher ground, and it's edgy and different and sort of a... a it's a much different experience than your usual chamber music concert. Mm. And then I work as an arranger with them and a conductor, and so I get to do things like conducting these upcoming performances, which I love. Now, how did you get involved in music comp? Because that just seems so exciting to me to be working with young people. So so music comp is, is a program that I run that pairs composers from – professional composers from across the country – Actually, and the world who mentor young oh, young uh, students in mostly in Vermont, but we have students across the country, and then we teach them and work with them as they create original music and put on concerts. <laughs> That's so awesome. So there's a student down at Cross of Brook Middle School who is working with a professional composer from Sydney, Australia. And, and how do they do that? Zoom and all, all it's, the who It's knows? always been online. It's actually mm. it's a text based online, but it was started by a woman, Sandy McLeod, thirty five years ago, and wow. it's just so far ahead of her time. 
that that's just really that's very impressive. That's great. Um, I used to live. I used to have a place in uh, on Lake Dunmore, and there was a music school there. And sitting Point counterpoint. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. And sitting on the dock at night and listening to these kids, it was just mm-hmm. oh my serious. It was just a Vermont moment. It was great. Anyway, Daniel, could you talk a little bit about the animation studio at Middlebury and um, all your awards? Congratulations. <clears throat> Sure, of course. Uh, I've been working there uh, 10 years, working with undergraduate college students, taking them through an intro to animation class, which for many of them is the first time saying hello to 3D computer animation. And uh, for many of them, also a first trip back to art making. Uh, And from there forward into the studio, we work on collaborative projects together, uh, one of which was Estraita, the film that uh, I'm very excited to see at a night at the movies with the Vermont Symphony Orchestra because it seems like such an exciting and compelling way to uh, bring film and animation to new audiences and to bring new audiences to the orchestra. That's really great. I mean, that's sort of the wave of the future, animation and and all of the stuff we do online. I'm not. I'm old, but I've I've sort of caught on a little bit. I've sort of proud of my pathetic use of the internet and stuff. But that sounds wonderful, yeah. Daniel. I'm going to try to get to Middlebury to see all of this. Um, so Daniel right. and uh, Matt are here to announce a new and exciting VSO project <laughs> that they've collaborated on. I'm sure with many others. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called, as uh, Daniel just said, a night at the movies, featuring a live 22-piece VSO chamber orchestra accompanying seven documentary documentary and animation films with Vermont Ties. Could you please explain this to us? Because I'm having a, a struggle sort of thinking about what this is all about. So go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So in a nutshell, what you'll see when you come to the concert is that we will have seven short films being screened um, on a big screen behind the orchestra and all of the sound, all of the music is coming from the orchestra itself and being actually performed live. So we're performing in real time the soundtracks to these seven different movies. Oh, excellent. So there's no sound coming from the movies. It's all coming from the orchestra? Exactly. <laughs> what a great concept. I, I was doing some research, and I think this is something that is done elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It's not like new, new, to, but it's new to us that you're, you're putting it together. And, um, Daniel, uh, you have one in particular that you just pronounced, and I... Um, oh, yes, Estreita. Estreita. Yeah. So how did that come about? Because all of the songs, most of the songs are new and, and written just for this event, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And some of the fun has been um, getting to know Matt a little bit, who's a Middlebury alum, and myself, who's a Middlebury alum, and a student at the time, who's now an alum, uh, composed the score for this animation uh, while still a student and um, and then came back to uh, recompose and reorchestrate uh, for this live performance. So it's been lovely just having some intergenerational crossover along with all the artistic aspects of the production. And your, your contribution is a, a film that is animated, is that correct? That's correct, okay. yeah. 3D computer animation, uh, trying to talk about uh, coming of age as an undocumented farm worker in Vermont. And and I just want to pop in for a second because this is, I I love Estrita and it's, you you know, to be frank, it's unlike any animation I had ever personally seen before. If I, if I can just, you know, just say that honestly, it's, it's amazing because 
it's it's like if Pixar got really deep. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that a good way to yeah. say it, Daniel? I, I mean, yeah. But I mean it very totally. seriously. It's yeah, it's beautiful yeah, animation with real content for the family friendly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Hey, um, explain to me, of- um, uh, Daniel. I read about um, the breadth of musical styles and film stories from two animated shopping carts searching for love to the story of Hansel and Gretel. Could you? Are you allowed to give us a little hint about the lovers? Well, we can, but that, uh, so that's actually not yeah. Daniel's film. So oh, that's not Daniel, Daniel's is Estrieta. Yeah. Ah, oh, sorry. Yeah. So maybe I we can let him a... talk about that, and then I'll fill okay. in the Okay, why don't you talk about the films. the storyline behind Estrita? That sounds like a good plan. Yeah. Um, well, Vermont, where we live, is um, a beautiful state, and it's mountainous, and it's rural, and it has a layered history and various migrations to it. And um, one thing that caught my eye eight years ago was the start of a campaign to try to figure out how we have a population of of a significant size of people living now year-round milking Vermont's dairy cows, which are part of its bucolic landscape, um, as undocumented farm workers in a completely different status from farm workers who visit to pick apples seasonally and come uh, through a structured mechanism, there's an entire population of people here who uh, stay and stay long enough to get married and to have kids and to have kids who are born as American citizens to parents who are uh, undocumented right. uh, Mexican or Guatemalan uh, South American nationals. And so there are uh, tragic and interesting and compelling uh, stories playing out on Vermont farms uh, right now. And one that um, definitely inspired some of the storytelling behind the project was the story uh, from, I believe it was around 2015, of a farm worker uh, trying to use a calling card to call home. And instead of dialing 011, which the calling card instructed, Uh-oh. accidentally dialed 911 and spoke a few words of Spanish, uh, which then triggered uh, uh, the entirety of an ICE response and a raid and the deportation of five people. And so it brought a uh, kind of harsh light on the um, significant risks that are playing out on farms uh, because of the challenges right. of milking cows. Uh, there's a story. So I, I was that inspired the question, yeah, well, how do you grow up in that environment right. and what does childhood look like? And um, Looking over your shoulder uh, all the time. Uh, on some level, yeah, and on some level, being a kid. Yeah, so, right. um, yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm very excited to see this. I was um, When I was commissioner of labor, we got involved with the Jamaicans who came to in Middlebury area, in your area, to pick the apples yes. and to make sure right. that the housing was acceptable and that they were tr- being treated well. Um, yeah. And it's the same and group that would come, that come back and years forth. Later, yeah. 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 It's just compelling that 12 years later – uh, it hasn't been figured out for the state of right. farm workers. Simple yeah. things like trips to the grocery store, uh, which require either a driver's license or mm-hmm. a van ride or an illegal trip in the night to try to get to Shaw's, uh, are compelling facts of life that um, yeah. we're all involved in because we live here. A couple of years ago, um, I'm trying to remember which governor, but Senator Leahy and maybe someone, I can't remember, but they tried so hard to try to get these uh, undocumented, uh, because we need them. They come and they want to work for our farms, want to try to get, uh, figure out a way to get them here legally, 
And it just, and they worked really hard on it, but there's such a resistance. I don't understand it. This can't be brain surgery. Um, that Powerful. they should have dealt with it. Because yeah. we yeah. need them. I agree yep. with you. So, um, um so the, the, uh, the songs, they were picked specifically to go with, um, the movies, correct? And you are how we see water. That's, that's, uh, your composition. Can you talk yes. a little bit? I mean, we're going to play some of these, uh, two, three of these songs in just a minute, just so you can get a sense of what you're going to hear. Um, how we see water. Sure. Although I think we're going to play two balloons first. So. Yes, right. Yeah. So right. how about I talk about that one? Cause that's a really. Oh, okay. Go interesting ahead. part of process. So two balloons, um, so all of these films stemmed out of a collaboration we've been doing with Middlebury New Filmmakers Festival, which is how I met Daniel through that and through the person who runs it, Lloyd Komasar. And each year, the VSO would either commission a new piece to be created by a filmmaker and a composer. So that was what I did with Robin Starbuck with How We See Water, or we would find a existing film from the festival and I would take the orchestra score and arrange it for, or I would take the film score and arrange it for live orchestra. And so what we did with two balloons, which is another animated film and just gorgeous is I worked with a composer, Peter Broderick to take the music that he wrote and all of the sound effects that are in the movie. And I transformed that into a live orchestra. Wow. And how, so, how long have you been working on this project? A while, I'm assuming. Well, I mean, we start the whole thing has been happening, you know, one a year over the course of right, six years or right. so. I bet. So it's a nice culmination. And Two Balloons is really fun because we have a lot of sound effects that are built into the film be recreated in the orchestra. So like a tea kettle going off, we have Melissa, our flute player, plays a really high-pitched oh, whistle tone awesome. on her flute. There's a big thunderstorm and... uh Nick, our percussionist, has big what we call thunder tubes that he right. shakes that really makes it sound like a real live – they're spring-loaded canisters basically. What but it treat. sounds like what a, a real live thunderstorm. The closest I ever came was in Gettysburg when they were doing um, uh, 4th of July celebrations and they had the fireworks and they had the orchestra – was playing mm-hmm. with the sound effects of the fireworks. I was in complete tears. I was a total meltdown. It was really, it was really exciting. I'm going. That's it. Nice. All right. Um, so what I'd like to do is play uh, Two Balloons, which is um, one of the songs that you'll hear if you go to the concert. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you. Hi there. This is Pat McDonald. We were listening to Two Balloons by Mark Smith and music by Peter Broderick. Um, you know what I felt when I was listening to that? Just two balloons. When you know when you as a kid you let it go and the balloons just go up. Yeah. You can you can feel them rising. Mm-hmm. I hope that's part of the intent of this. Is it? It kind of is. So this is uh, the the accompanying film that this score will be performed with by by the VSO is um, about two lemurs who find one another floating through the sky in dirigibles. Oh, isn't that the cool thing? It's amazing, and 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 the animation and the story behind it is brilliant, and the and the music, you know, like like all of these pieces, having the music be live and right. in the moment as you're watching this on the big screen is it's really special and it's and it's a really immersive. Well, experience. I can tell because you were beaming over here. Oh, yeah. He's just thrilled to be talking about this, which is great. And I bet Daniel's doing the same thing. Now, what's interesting, um, all of the concerts, if that's the right word for it, the production starts at seven, from seven to eight. So it's an hour. But before the show, there's a pre-show talk um, with you and Daniel and Matthew Kevin Taylor. Uh, Matthew Evan Taylor. Evan. Oh, typo. Matthew Evan. <laughs> Uh, who is a uh, multi-instrumentalist and composer? Um, so, what will that that what will that consist of? What will that be? We talking to people that are, yeah. have come and so so we'll have um, this will be at the Middlebury concert, which is okay. on uh, Friday, and Daniel, myself, and Matthew Evan Taylor, who is also a professor at Middlebury, will talk about what it's like to create create an an art like this. How do we write music to films? Daniel will talk about his animation process. Um, I'll probably ask Daniel mm-hmm. questions about how how do how do we fit the music in? Right. Because I find mm-hmm. that's always fascinating from filmmaker yeah. standpoints. Right. Um, and Daniel, especially because, correct me if I'm wrong, Daniel. A lot of your films mm-hmm. don't have dialogue in them. Yeah, that became uh, a way both to solve a logistical challenge of trying to do lip sync animation, but also a way to just try to make open, expressive animation where the music has time to actually grow and develop. So maybe we could answer Matt's question: How do you do it? I mean, what's what's the uh, what's the mind process of seeing a video and comparing it to and making it alive in music? Yeah, um, I think step one is to try to identify someone with a talent and an interest uh, to pay attention and care for the music and then to trust them enough to give them time to uh, do that developmental work. And so for us, that's been an iterative process where we're often uh, still in the midst of animation production while the music, the composer is beginning the work, which is a challenging space to begin in because music is so dependent upon timing. And um, in the midst of an animation production, the timing hasn't all been figured out. Um, so what's coming to mind are moments where working with uh, Jack DeButer, composing for Estrellita, um, he would come up with a musical phrase, and then three weeks later, we'd have to rediscuss um, how the timing of the sequence had shortened and the phrase no longer functioned. He couldn't just speed it up and have it still be the same musical phrase. And so his flexibility throughout that process was also paramount. And so that search often uh, begins with somebody actually interested 
in the demands of working for film composition, which I would argue are pretty different from uh, the demands of composing uh, for uh, music as the um, only entity on the stage. You must have so many uh, young people wanting to sign up for your course. I would think this is just so perfect for the modern-day kid who who's um, pretty com- comfortable with all of this stuff we do with uh, computers. and uh, It must be a great energizing cr- uh, class for you. Absolutely. It's a way to uh, uh, practice technology, become more literate with digital tools, uh, to do problem solving, uh, to do the hard work of collaboration, um, which is not easy, and um, and hopefully uh, to enjoy uh, making a product that then gets to live on, which is part of what's so exciting uh, about the moment I'm remembering when Matt reached out to say, what if we did this thing? Cool. Um, because it gave... Uh, a chance for a project which was becoming forgotten, a chance to have a second life, which is just so thrilling. Could someone talk about, um, speaking of um, uh, students, what's happening with students who want to come to the thing? That's I'm very impressed with this part of it. Could you talk about it? So so one of the amazing things that the VSO does is we have a program called Student Insiders, and that's where uh, school-age students get free tickets to the event, um, and in addition to seeing a great concert, then they get to talk to people involved beforehand. And so when we're down in Castleton, we'll have a hundred some odd students from mm. the greater Rutland, Castleton, Pulteney area who will be coming to the show. And the students and I and our percussionist, Nick Caranzaro, will all get together beforehand. We'll talk about how we made these things. I'll show them the setup, the fact that when I when I conduct, I have to wear headphones and I have a metronome click track going in my ears the whole time. So that way, explain, when there's explain that I have no absolutely. idea. Absolutely. So what yeah. Is that? So and when when I conduct the films live, there's all these hit points that I have to make. Mm-hmm. So if a screen fade, like if there's an abrupt cut to black or a big moment, there's one there's one spot in two balloons where. There's a big crash and into the water, and that's accompanied by a big musical mm-hmm. hit. And mm-hmm. so I have to time that perfectly. And to do so, I wear headphones while I conduct that has a metronome. Oh, oh yes, okay. Going the whole time, right. which allows me to place things exactly where they are. Excellent. I knew I knew that word, but I was like, "What is that?" Yeah. Oh, that's great. Interesting. Yeah, so they'll get a really good insight into the process. Nick will show all the different percussion techniques he uses to help create sound effects. Um, There's a moment where in my piece he has, he's playing the bass drum, but he doesn't play it with a mallet. He plays it with uh, literally a super ball, a bouncing ball Hmm. that is stuck on the end of a kitchen skewer. (laughs) And you drag it across the top of the bass drum and it makes this awesome roaring noise almost wow cool and so we'll demonstrate ingenuity at work exactly that's great uh we have to take another break um this is pat mcdonald your host for vermont viewpoint on wdev Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. 
If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Um, we are back talking about the VSO's amazing events coming up um, and a night at the movies. I just wanted to play Estralita, which is um, uh, from the animation studio, and, the, and Daniel Houghton, who's the producer of it. We're going to play a little bit of that. Sounds very interesting. Congratulations, Daniel. Is that a person sort of adding some voice to the music? That sound of oh, oh. sure. I mean, that's the opening sequence where uh, the child protagonist is uh, sort of in a in a, a tail end of a dream, riding a cow up into the stars, and so uh, she's waking up on a dairy farm. So you can hear the cows uh, on their way to the milking parlor. <laughs> I, the I love it. So creative. That's really great. Yeah, uh, let yeah. me t- let me tell folks about the schedule so you can go on the website and um, hopefully um, there's tickets available. I think Castleton, uh, I have Castleton at March 29th, Johnson March 30th, and Middlebury March 31st. Did I miss anything or is that at the three places? Nope, that's correct. That's going to be some weekend, people. Yeah. I bet nice Monday you're all going to be comatose. Um, and that's a lot of planning, so could get everybody moved around the state. Yep. Is that you? That's you? No, that's not okay. me, thankfully. <laughs> well, because I love um, – Matt sent me a, sent me an email um, just – I think it was this morning or last night. And he said, well, actually, your job is doing – what did you say? Doing – sort of like duties as assigned, you know? <laughs> I, I do a lot and mostly okay. all the non-traditional yeah, the non- things. Yes. Me, so. Well, that's a cool yeah. job. I like it. So check this out. It's really cool. Um I would like to take a minute, um, unless you want to talk about something else about the night at the movies. Okay, I wanted to switch um, uh, to the VSO itself. And yesterday, we were hoping it would be today, but yesterday the VSO announced that they have a new music director and the individual – well, I'm not going to do it. You do it, Matt. Explain. Sure. We, yesterday we, we've been having a music director search that has – gone on through COVID, so lasted for what seems like ever, <laughs> forever. Um, but we landed, and yesterday we announced in uh, Andrew Crust will be joining us next season as our music director, which we're just absolutely thrilled about. Well, his background, I just, I pulled it off the internet. I have to read it to you because it's very impressive. Um, he'll take over at the end of, what is this, March? End of September? That can't be right. He'll take over. I mean, he'll take over. We start our season, our 23-24 season, 
will start in September. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, so he'll start in okay. September. And uh, he is the orchestra's fifth music director, American-Canadian conductor, was selected out of a pool of seven finalists, and succeeds Jamie Laredo, who we all love, after 20 years. Unbelievable. Uh, so, Cruss background, he has an international career as a conductor of orchestral, opera, ballet, film, pops, and choral programs. In his recent and upcoming season, Cruss conducted the Vancouver, Winnipeg, Calgary, San Diego, um, Arkansas, Elgin, Rockford, Chattanooga, Memphis, and the list continues. Sounds like an amazing match. Yeah, we're, That's we're really great. excited. Good, good for him. I'm glad because also I must say I looked at the the bios of all the people, the seven people that were on the list. Must have been a hard decision. It was, yeah. you know, but it, it it was, and then it also wasn't. When when we came down oh. to really making a decision, there was a very unanimous feeling that Andrew was going to be the right person for us and for Vermont. That's great. Yeah. Well, I know there's going to be a um, salute to Laredo coming up. And I think that will be packed um, yeah. because there's a lot of people that want to be part of that salute. Yep. And um, I don't remember the date, but it's um, it's coming up soon. It's in, uh, I believe it's the first weekend of May. We'll oh, be at the right. Flynn, and it will be Jamie's final concert with the VSO. That's as he great. Steps well, down. he deserves a lot of our thanks and appreciation for what he does. Um, so um, just to talk about how lucky we are to have the VSO, was founded in Woodstock in 1934. Um, and I like that they decided at one point to visit all 251 cities back in the day, and they did it. Yep. And what's nice about our VSO now, they they do hit the road. They come to the state house. Um, trying to think where I've seen them. Well, even um, even this tour, right? Part of right. part of our goal is that we are a statewide organization, yeah. and we take that very seriously. So we'll be down in Castleton and up in Johnson and in Middlebury. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I'm sure they're always sold out performances because when you come to the Barry Opera House, I'm there. It's just great. So um, there was – I can't pronounce the first orchestra leader was Ephraim G-U-I-G-U-I. Does that name even ring a bell? This was back from 1974. Yes, but I'm not not sure how to pronounce it I'm not either. Daniel, can you help us out? Do you know the the pronunciation of – Oh, I don't think I'll take this opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Coward. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's G-U-I, G-U-I. Um, that was the, he was the first and he, uh, from 1974 to 1989. And then Kate Tamer, Tamerkin was music director. Most of us know her name. Uh, and then of course Jamie Laredo for 20 years. And now we have Andrew Crust. Crust. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really great. That was a very intensive, um, search. Yeah. From what I saw on the website, it's took, which is good. Yeah. Um, and I also want to talk about uh, Robert DeCormier, um, cause they, he and, um, Kate Dammer got very involved in the, uh, uh, statewide, the youth, the youth choir, youth, which is wonderful. Isn't mm-hmm. that, that's just so great to get Amazing. the kids involved. And Robert DeCormier in general is one of the true shining lights in music period. Right. I have always said on this show uh, the how lucky we are, and I, I talk to commerce and community development to tell them that maybe they should shine a light on all the artists here because it's not just music. It's name it, and we've got really 
very, very talented people. Um, they're here for a reason and to love the, the state, but they're very talented. Absolutely. You know, it's just great. And you are, you are the shining light of this whole group here, the VSO. Um, and then you've got the VSO Summer Festival Tour, the 2022. Are you involved in that going? Uh, with a little bit of the artistic planning, yes. Right. So we've got a summer tour going around. Ray Vega will be guesting with us, which will be awesome. And it's all based on jazz and American swing. So the oh, program really? is just so much fun. Oh, that's and great. So, and Ray will be a soloist with us for a number of tunes. That's great. I remember going to, um, trying to remember where my head is getting old, but we brought chairs and blankets and had food. Yeah. And it was one. And then, of course, you know, the, the sun is setting and the view and the music. It was like, good grief. Where uh, else can you find it? No, <laughs> it doesn't exactly. get better. Exactly. And they're very comfortable to talk to you, too, if you go up. Yep. And and just introduce yourself and stuff. All of the people are are very nice to talk to. Yeah. And I think they appreciate the audience, and the audience appreciates them. So um, what do you think is new for the VSO? Uh, anything besides this, the exciting things you are doing? Well, one of, one of the things that uh, coming up and pretty shortly at the end of April that I'm really excited for is within our jukebox, our chamber music series, We'll have shows down in South Pomfret at Artistry and one at Higher Ground. And we've commissioned a, a piece for it by Zoe Keating. And Zoe Keating is a composer, also a film composer, and a cellist who really pioneered uh, looping, ch- looping string instruments and right. looping cellos. And she plays concerts where... She records herself in real time and builds out these uh, songs that have an orchestral feel all from just her single cello. And so we'll be, we commissioned a new string quartet for her and are, we, and we will be preparing it at our jukebox concert in April. Which is explain really the jukebox concert again. Is that the funky kind of music or yep. not so, the traditional music from VSO? Well, it's lots of traditionals too. It's everything, but it's, so it's, it's a series that we've been running for six years now, and we it, it doesn't feel like a regular chamber music concert. I mean, we're usually in a bar or or something like that. I mean, we're in higher ground where all the rock bands play. Yes, exactly. Um, and we get a chance to really do unexpected things, and so we have we play. Beethoven and Bach and all these new composers and non-traditional composers as well, and and it's fun. The la- the last show that we did in January, we had an afternoon where it was a kids show, um, and we had a hundred plus kids and their parents running around listening to Haydn <laughs> and Glass, and all of the string quartet, and and it was beautiful. And then that night we did an eighteen and over adults only show that was. Really not a great place to have young children, but really focused on this other side of classical music that we sometimes just push away. All right. And why do the children, should the children not be there? Because there was a lot of sex in the show. There was a oh, lot of bad words. The there was sex. a lot of violence. There <laughs> I was see. a lot of Thank drugs. Thank you. Yep, yep, there we go. TMI. <laughs> <laughs> good for you. It's not good for the kids. Exactly. Uh, oh it's good God. for the adults, yeah, not the kids. Uh, don't even want to know about that. So, um, Matt, um, no, not Matt, Daniel, could we talk about the studio and 
I mean, like, what's your next project? What, how do you get the kids involved in, in a project and do they develop it? Do you, how does it all work? Yeah, certainly. Um, and, uh, this might sound a tiny bit chaotic at first blush, but, um, the studio is currently, uh, exploring additional applications of 3D technology and we're taking a couple of years to, uh, get our feet under us in the world of industrial design. And so the same cohort of students is using very similar tools to now start partnering with a medical device company ah. to make uh, actual parts for surgical robots. Right. So, you know, my um, somebody in my family wanted um, a knee replacement or needed one, and she waited to go to, um, what's the hospital up north, that they are very involved in, um, yeah. in making 3D and it's perfect. So when you get your knee replaced, they just put the knee in. I mean, it's and it's exactly fit because of of what that um, system allows. Absolutely. And so uh, we're finding that a similar mindset, a collaborative spirit, the uh, uh, interest in project work and problem solving, uh, and computer technology are all playing out uh, in a, a different but exciting way. Um, in this uh, new vein. So we're exploring uh, uh, ways of broadening what the studio is up to. That's right. So do you work, like you said, about industry? Um, do you yep. work with people in industry to, to figure out what they might need or not need? How do, how right. do you get the ideas so, and, and how do you focus on a specific, like, you know, knee replacement? How does that happen? Yeah, like uh, similar to uh, finding what feels like an exciting partnership with the Vermont Symphony Orchestra. Right. Uh, this summer, uh, several students will be joining me after taking an intro class, uh, working with a local medical device company that's um, producing actual parts that are involved wow. in surgeries. And so um, <laughs> it just feels like an opportunity to uh, engage some high-level and high-risk um, uh, work using those same 3D tools. I bet your students are completely immersed in this and are thrilled when they know what they made went into somebody's knee or whatever you're doing. I mean, that's that's yeah. really heavy-duty stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and similar to the conversations in animation being about, you know, are the emotions working or not? Right. Uh, we're now talking about are the mechanisms working or not? Uh, and there's a similar kind of high stakes feel to all the choices. You've got Matt on. smiling away here from ear to ear. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, so. it's uh, on the one hand very chaotic and a sudden shift, and on the other, it seems totally natural and uh, the same but different. That's really great. Now, um, uh, Matt, um, have you been? How long have you been with the VSO? So I've been with the VSO for about. Six or seven okay. years now. Have you seen uh, maybe um, uh, maybe Daniel would know too? Have you seen any what kind of changes that the VSO has gone through? Because your audience changes, and you have to be flexible enough to change with it. I'm assuming. Yep. Right. Um, and and it's been sort of, it's been really exciting. And I think I was first brought on to help enact a lot of those changes. Yeah. And and think differently about things. And so our jukebox series is a great example where it really is purposefully a more comfortable place for everyone to come. So we see our constituents who have been to every VSO show, they'll come to jukebox. And we'll see, you know, that middle-aged demographic and younger people and and kids. Right. And, and, it's, and it's really 
fun to put it in non-traditional places. Like I said, we can go to a bar, we oh. can go to higher ground, and it feels natural. And then the and then the other things like this film project or last year we did a show that I worked with a company in Texas to design that we called the Visualizer Orchestra, which was all done with um, basically light projections um, in time to music that worked in real time. So we would be playing Rimsky Korsakov Scheherazade, and oh. as the music is unfolding, it's almost like a real-time Fantasia where you have these projections being built in that are reacting to and working with the music. That's great. Now, that I, that piece I know. I yeah. think everybody knows that piece. Absolutely. Oh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> uh, I like when you when you hear these kind of music, like in, a, in an advertisement on TV, and you perk right up. You go, oh, I know that. That's yep. cool. Um, that's great. And I think um, the VSO... I know when it comes to um, their Christmas concert um, uh, that they go around in either – well, the State House is the Farmer's Night, mm-hmm. and uh, Barry City has them uh, during the Christmas season, and it's just perfect to listen to them. Yeah. It's really – and your board of directors, I looked at the list of people on the board of directors, serious supporters of the VSO. Yep. I, I know most of the names. Um it's a great board. Have you ever, you know, presented to them or talked to them? Or yeah, yeah, we we run into each other a lot. Yeah, you know, and it's great because they're like us. They're from every corner of the right. state, and so it feels like we have a nice representation and a nice, and 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 can really check in with all the different corners of Vermont, which are fairly right. far flung. Yeah. It's it's good that they're accessible to you because uh, they need to know from boots on the ground what what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, so we have just a few minutes, Matt. Do you want to, um, Matt, uh, Daniel, sorry about that. Do you mm-hmm. want to um, talk a little bit about um, why people should go to see um, your performance here at Night at the Movies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you should go because you like live music, classical music, symphonic music. Uh, you should go if you want to explore your conception or preconceptions of what animation is and can be and try to broaden that uh, horizon. I think for a lot of people, um, one of the takeaways is, oh, I didn't know that you could do that with animation or I huh. didn't know um, that this world existed. Um, and so to just go discover a piece of it because it's a vast and uh, uh, teeming sea of uh, awesome uh, possibility. So I am always trying to proselytize how animation is movies, too, and um, can uh, strum just the same strings of the heart as uh, live-action movies with actors. That's great. I can tell you're excited about this, too. So, um, Matt, you want to wrap this up? Yeah, and I'll just say, come to the show for for the experience. It, It really is something different. These are seven brand new short films, all made within the last six years that are meaningful and relevant and watching them and experiencing them with the music being live in real time it's 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 really unique and and it's really special and each of these um looking for my list of the songs oh here they are each of these songs are are new to this project pretty much right and they depict what's going on so is there while it's happening or would it be the pre-show that you would explain each each piece of music and how it fits into the, or they just they, feel it? Well, well, I mean, I'll give an introduction in between, but it really is they they stay together. All the music was either made for the films or made in conjunction with the films, so it really is 
a full piece of art. It's right. it's like watching a movie, but instead of having the soundtrack being played right. on on the speakers, the soundtrack is coming from live musicians. Awesome. That is really great. We're going to end the show with playing Mate. Mate? Mate. Mate. Could you quickly explain Mate to us? Oh, yeah. Mate is just a nice little love story about two shopping carts. Oh, I picked the right one. Excellent. Yeah. I want to know about the shopping cart thing. It's shopping carts <laughs> yeah. in love. Excellent. Oh, I'm so excited. Why don't we play that? Thank you both for joining us. Um, We'll end the show with the music, and this is Pam McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint, and we really thank our guests. Thank you, gentlemen. I'll see you in Middlebury. Thank you, Pat. Yeah, sure. Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. I'm here with Senator Andrew Perchlick, uh, representing Washington County. Uh, welcome, Senator. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing great. That's just right. to be clear, it's not the count, just the county anymore. We have Stowe, Orange, and Braintree. So oh, really? The other town. Oh, yeah, my we God. Expand. That's a lot of territory to cover. It is. Yeah, yeah I mean, over I asked the senator to come on today to talk about S5, which is an affordable heat act, and he is one of the sponsors. Um, it's um, got a lot of folks concerned about it, and on the other hand, there's a lot of folks in support of it. So um, the bill itself passed out of the Senate on an 18 to 10 vote. It's now in House Environment and Energy Com- Committee. But first, Senator, before we get into that, and I know we only have a half hour with you, um, I have to compliment you seriously for responding to the email I sent you about S5. Not many legislators, in my experience, will take the time to respond. And I actually spoke to a couple of people that said, yes, he responded to me as well. So thank you. Oh, good. Well, I can't get to everybody, but I, I do try. Well, it's great because um, it just makes a lot of difference um, that they know you're listening. And I, I looked at I looked at the list of committees you are on. Good grief. I don't know if you get to go home. Um, the senator, uh, all senators are on two committees as opposed to the House, which is uh, people are on one committee. The senator is on Senate Committee on Appropriations. Uh, he's the vice chair and Senate Committee on Transportation, the Senate Rules Committee, Senate Sexual Harassment Panel, which he's vice chair of, Government Accountability Committee, and the Income-Based Education Tax Study Committee, which just recently issued a report. So that may be one one thing off of your list to do. But yeah. appropriations is a huge commitment. Yeah, no, it's, it is. It's, but it's, um, it's quite the education. For it's sure. It's great working with, with the senior senators on there. There's a lot of, lot of experience in that room. Oh, for sure. And you get to really know 
the state government and all of the branches and courts and you really dig deep. Yeah. Um, the trouble with yeah. appropriations in my mind is that you very rarely get, um, get to be out on the floor, um, to hear other debates because they are always, always working. Yeah, and work late. Yeah, exactly. Yes, so, almost any bill that has money and it has to go through there. So there's a yeah, it's it's a big a big do. thing on the, who's the chair of appropriations these days? Chair Kitchell. Oh, the of course. For, for yeah, actually, um, Senator, we have a call. Um, Anthony from Montpelier, and um, Anthony, Great. Um, you're on live. Go ahead. Well, thank you, Pat, and thank you for giving this topic some more attention and for the senator for coming on um, with the, the latest report from scientists this week out of the UN that we have less time than we thought to save ourselves from climate change. This is a very timely um, topic. Of course, nobody thinks we can do this alone in Vermont, um, but we do need to do our part. And I'm glad that there's um, legislation like this aimed at that. One of the nice things that I'm, uh, interested in about this is that the the Affordable Heat Act presents a win-win solution by incentivizing weatherization as a clean Mm -hmm. measure. Um, The fact that Vermonters live in old drafty homes is one of the reasons why our per capita uh, greenhouse gas emissions are higher than some of our neighboring states. Um, I was wondering if the senator could speak to what the legislature is doing to make sure that we have the workforce needed to enable low and middle income Vermonters to take advantage of the increased lower cost weatherization uh, opportunities that will come as a result of the Clean Heat Act or the Affordable Heat Act if it passes. Yeah, and I think regardless, thanks for the call, and I think regardless if if it passes, and I think it will, but we're we're doing you know some weatherization out there. We had ARPA money that we're putting to doing some more whole home work that is working on this issue. We have the low income weatherization program. So the the workforce demand has been something that we already we already had before, and would be, it would be a, a bigger issue if we just start doing more and more of this. So there there are different initiatives. Um, I liked the one that we, we, we funded, I think, last year or two years ago that's working with, you know, uh, CAP agencies mm-hmm. and Audubon and different agencies to work with tech schools and just do specific programs to reach out to folks that that need a job and that are interested in this kind of work to train them in weatherization, and it sets them up with an, kind of a on-the-job training, so it, it, some classroom stuff, but then put some on the on the street, so to speak, going out with weatherization crews to see if they want to do this kind of work. Um, so it's definitely something that's that we're aware of and, and working on, and it's part of the and part of the bill, basically. That if if this is to happen, the the kind of building of the whole market is is, is part of this, and part of developing the market would be developing the workforce, and that would be go hand in hand. I think. A good example of what we do now with Efficiency Vermont, Efficiency Vermont, give the, yeah, they give incentives for efficiency projects, but they're also thinking about the whole marketplace and the whole, the whole value chain and everything that's happening to make it work. It's just not just installing the efficiency measures, but who's going to do that and how can they help 
build that market? How can they work with the businesses? And that would be the same here with the fuel dealers or fuel importers. It's like, how can we work with you to, to, to get more workers? What, what can we do to have more training or make it more attractive for people to go into this, this force? So it's definitely something that's, that's top of mind for, for legislators and those working in, in the field. It's a huge issue for sure. Um, I used to not get the weatherization um, approach, but I do now. I'm a total supporter. It really makes a difference in somebody's house um, yeah. more, more than I ever imagined. So I'm, I take back my comments. I, I think it's a great, uh, a great tool and um, it saves a lot. It saves a lot of money. And for people going into, into jobs, that's a job that's not going away. I think weatherization will be with us for a long time. So if people want a career, that's a good place to go, to look. Um, of course, there's other things, you know, housing and all the other stuff that's that's surrounded yeah. by the workforce, and and the legislature is working on um, a pretty comprehensive housing bill. So we'll see how that works. But uh, Senator um, S five, um, when it was introduced, looks much different than it does now. And appropriations was the one that um, kind of turned the bill into a different direction. Um, could you talk yeah. about that bill and how it changed into a study? Yeah, the, the big thing that the appropriations committee did with the with the bill was, I would say not not I wouldn't call it a study, but I'd say it's like we want to make sure we had the full plan and the full analysis of what's the potential out there, which they call the potential study, which was we wanted to have all that done before it goes into effect. Uh-huh. Because as you said, and I know you've had on your show, talk about like what is the cost, right. what will be the cost to the fuel dealers, what will be the cost to those that are burning fossil fuels, how will this all work? And, and it's true that at the time we didn't have good answers to those questions, which just raised people's concern. Is like, well, if you can't answer these questions, why are you passing the bill? So the appropriations amendment was, okay, let's have those studies, the potential study, which really looks at all the different options, like how many heat pumps could we install? What would be the savings? How much weatherization could we do? What would the cost be? You know, what's the potential for doing more advanced wood heat in, in buildings in Vermont? And then using that potential study, design the program. So it's providing that the specifics, okay, here's how it would work. Because there's a lot of questions about these clean yep. heat credits and measures and these weird words that people don't weren't used to. So we would, it's going to take them, you know, two years to do this. We'll get a report next year and then we'll get the full design. And then not only do we ask them to design the whole program and provide all this information on the cost, but then we said, you can't move forward until the legislature votes again. And we would have to have a full bill. At one point there was a proposal just to have some kind of like resolution to say, yeah, that looks good. But the appropriations committee wanted basically a full bill to be passed in 2025. So we'll have another election. So if the Vermonters are really concerned about this, they'll have an election in between now and then to, to make their voices heard. And then the, the legislature in 25 would have to pass a bill. So it'd have to pass the Senate, have to pass the House, the governor will have to sign it or veto it, and we'd have to override the veto if that's an issue. So it, it, it's going to take some time to get all the design of the program done and the, the cost, but then we're not going to move forward until we have that information. And that, I think that was a, a critical thing yep. for a lot of legislators. And it was something that the governor asked for last year. 
Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm, I'm very glad that this is the approach you all took. Um, because you're right, there are so many questions and even on the heat pump, does it work in the cold? What, what's the cost? Um, we had a, a guy at, um, across the street from us at our campground who, um, implemented a, a heat pump and, uh, it works over there because he's, we're only there in the summer. But, um, there's a lot of questions about that. And, and may I be, I'm going to be a little honest here. You guys are talking about, um, the use of, uh, uh, fire, uh, Mark can't think of the word, um, using heat. Eating. Yes, thank you. Ugh. Um, <laughs> I, for, for quite a few years there was a discussion about how, how bad that is. Is, is there something I don't know about, um, uh, wood heat? Or are you well, asking people to do pellets? Pellets are a part of it, dry wood chips. What we call advanced wood heating is is not just like an old wood stove, an old, especially an old non-EPA certified wood stove, right. which, you know, a lot of Vermonters use and provide a lot of affordable heat. Right. But this is saying, like, using our natural resource that we have a lot of in Vermont, you know, we're almost 80% forested. We have a forest products industry that we want to support. We have a forest industry that we want to support. We want to do that sustainably, and we also want to have parts of the forest that are that are preserved, that aren't logged, but we have a lot of logging that we want to support. And advanced wood heating is using that wood resource in a responsible way, not only sustainable for the forestry, but low emissions and high efficiency, either boilers, so that could be pellets, or it could be just a a very efficient wood stove. Because the the wood stoves of today are much, much more efficient than they were, you know, in the 80s and things like that. So that's what we mean by that is, how do we use that responsibility? You know, we have one pellet mill in the Vermont. And when we talk about trying to build the whole market, it's like, well, how can we get more more pellet mills? Where build more pellet capacity here in Vermont? And that's a lot of jobs and economic development. Right. So one of the main reasons I was supportive of the bill and interested in this is I see, I see huge economic development potential, not only with advanced wood heat, but all these things that we're keeping more energy dollars in the state and doing that the work, whether it be weatherization or installing equipment or working on equipment or things like advanced wood heat, I just think it's, it's a huge economic development potential to keep more dollars circulating in our economy, but building jobs and businesses that could really succeed here. Vermont, I think, has because of our wood resource and our forest and the work that's happening across the northern forest with our neighbors, New York, New Hampshire, and Maine, that we have a lot of potential to really be leaders across the nation right. well, in Canada. Senator, we have to take a quick break here, um, and um, we'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint, and I'm with Senator Andrew Perchlick. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. I'm here with Senator Andrew Perchlick who is a member of the Appropriations Committee and Transportation Vice Chair. That's my that's my committee, Senator. I love transportation. <laughs> yeah, because you're a DMV commissioner. That's right. I love to hung out there all the time with the Senate, uh, with Representative Dick Pembrook and Senator Dick Mazza. Quite the team. Yeah, in fact, uh, Senator Mazza told me to say hi to you. Oh, thank you. I love that guy. He's so cool. Yeah. Um, anyway, so this I'm glad to hear that this study will will present costs because that was one of the biggest issues I've heard of people opposing the bill, like how much is it going to cost us. And there's a lot in the bill that doesn't – maybe I've got this wrong and you can correct me – doesn't affect me specifically. It's really the the process itself and how 
how the process will work. And it's very confusing. Right. And I think, who is it? Dick McCormick said it's a, he used a word to say it's a very, yeah, the Rube, Rube yeah exactly. Very complicated bill. And, um, I think that didn't help either. Um, that when yeah. people read it, they got very confused, uh, because your intent is to lower costs, correct? Yeah, definitely the lower cost, make, make heating more affordable and more economic for the state. Yeah, and you were talking and, about pellets. At one time, we, there were shortages of, of the wood pellets. Um, we'd have to make sure that doesn't happen again. Yeah, and that's why we want to work on, think of the whole, the whole market. Like, how, how can we get another pellet mill here in right. Vermont so we have more local pellets? And I think it's, it's the, the, you know, growing pains of, mm-hmm. the, of the market where if it's, if it's cold and some, a place like a, tractor supply in the spring might say like well let's not get a whole truckload of pellets because it's almost going to be warm weather but then we get a cold spell right like you can have that's why you have some shortages so more more fuel dealers selling pellets like i'd buy my pellets from barnes who's a local fuel dealer but they also sell pellets and have storage and they've gotten grants from the state to help build up that storage so that we don't have that problem because your truth is right we don't want to have people move to pellets or like do weatherization and not have the savings or install a heat pump and think like, oh, this is going to meet all my needs and it not be. We, that's why we want to have a, like an organized whole program right. to, to try to avoid those problems as we make this transition. So as they're studying the, the, the things that are in the bill now, they will move forward but not be implemented. Is that what's going to happen so that when the legislature gives the go ahead, things are ready to go? How, how is that going to work? Exactly. So they're, they're going to do this potential study, just like look at the, basically think of it as looking at the whole heating market and all the different technologies and options we have and say like, kind of what is out there? What could we do? What's feasible? What would the cost be? And then based on that, we'll do a report next year. So we'll see that report next year huh. and we can decide, oh, you know, based on that, we already know we want to change something. We could, we could change the, the law next year. But we could also just say, like, okay, that's an interesting study, and then allow the PUC, the Public Utility Commission, to design the whole program, figure out the more detail on the cost to the retailer, to the homeowner, to the business owner, and the, the, the cost, and the specific, like, what would happen with each, like, fuel dealer or fuel importer. And then they would report back to us with those costs and detailed design in 2025, and then that would not become a program unless we pass another bill saying it would be a program. And then in that bill, we could say, well, be based on your design, we're really concerned about this little part about how it's going to work with small fuel dealers, so we want to change it. Right. Once we have all that information, we could we could make changes. And as I said, it would have to be passed by the House, the Senate, and then the governor. Like well, I've had Matt Coda on the show from the Vermont fuel dealers, and they're yeah. a little worried for sure what's going to happen. Sure. Um, but yeah. I will say you have got a lot of support. Uh, there was a list of um, nonprofits that um, really support the effort you're doing. VPIRG, um, Vermont Rights and Democracy, Vermont Business for Social Responsibility, and it goes on and on. Um, but there is yeah. opposition. And the governor, is he? what's he thinking these days? Last year, he didn't like the bill, and um, he vetoed it. Yeah, I think, yeah, and we did add that kind of what we call the look back where the legislature had to vote again because of the governor saying he wanted to make sure that the legislature had that. He vetoed it anyway 
Um, I don't. I haven't heard anything, you know, specific from the governor's yeah. office this year. Um, so I don't know what what he's yeah. saying. I don't know. I was changes. searching around. He didn't make any comments about this yet. Yeah, I haven't seen any official comments, and I think we we made some changes in in, in hopes that that he could sign it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we'll we'll see how that goes. But we think it's you know it's important for some like. Somebody like me, you know, my first job in Vermont was working on fuel assistance and working with low-income mm. Vermonters to keep warm, and that was in 1995. And we really haven't changed our programs to help low-income Vermonters. We still have the, the federal program about, you know, LIHEAP, and we have the weatherization program. And we've tried to do things over the years, but it's basically the same program for the past 28 years. Huh. And we really need to change something, I think, because I think our over-reliance on fossil fuels is a problem, both right. as far as we have no control of the price. It's all imported, obviously. And the, the years that it goes, price goes up, people can't afford to heat their homes. But we don't have much of an answer other than if we get more federal money for the fuel assistance program. So this would say, okay, how do we get off of that? And how do we do it in a way that builds a local economy? It's not let's get off fossil fuels and just import something else. How do we do it so m- more of that is local in Vermont, that's a local fuel, and we can support a local economy to build well, here Senator, in Vermont that, that also got, keeps us warm? You've got two phone calls coming in. You're maybe winning the prize for phone calls. Um, Joe from Bristol. <laughs> okay. Hold on. Joe from Bristol, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yes, good morning to good morning. you, guest. And I had a question concerning the amount of carbon dioxide that private jet aircraft oh. releases mm-hmm. and huge, yeah. huge yachts. Uh, you realize that the, the inertia to push a huge yacht through the water is, is, uh, yeah. is astounding. They get, they get uh, gallons of fuel to the mile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally gallons like of fuel to one mile <laughs> of transportation. Why are not uh, many of the groups that you, we mentioned uh, hey. in the talk, why are, aren't we down at the Burlington Airport in great protest? And why aren't we down on the shoreline of Lake Champlain protesting that four people in a huge yacht are just floating around aimlessly uh, on uh, vacation excursions and people coming in and out of the uh, airport in private jets, two or three people on board. Actually, our uh, Secretary of Transportation, uh, Pete Buttigieg, just recently Mm -hmm. in the last four or six months, uh, and he's a big backer of the uh, climate change theory, he flew a private jet with uh, four people on board to Portugal for a vacation. So, uh, obviously... He does not really yeah. believe this. Joe, so let's uh, let uh, the senator true. respond because we're we're close to a break, and I want to get uh, your answer in, and also I have another caller. Yeah, so, and I can stay a little bit at 10.30, so maybe go past the next break possibly. But, um, oh, okay. Yeah, it is a concern, but the, it, the reason you're not having people protest, I think, is because even though per vehicle the gas mileage to, on these vehicles is horrible, it still doesn't raised to the same kind of a level to the, the fuel that we're doing other ways. But our transportation fuel use is another thing that we need to address for sure. 
And I think I really look forward to Beta Technologies, a Vermont company that's trying to build electric planes and how we can use that. So these, for whether they're private jets or small jets that are doing uh, packages, can be electric. And, then, and build the batteries here in Vermont. They're, they're building a new place in St. Albans and expanding their, their project at the Burlington Airport. That's another example of how if we address this, we can be ahead of the curve and be leaders and be, uh, it can really be an economic engine for Vermont, for Vermont. That's great. Thank you for your question. Uh, Mac from Hyde River, would you mind holding on till after the break? I'm, I hate to ask you, but we're kind of close to a, a mandatory break. So, um, Mac from Hyde Park, please, please hang on. Uh, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We'll be right back with another question for the Senator. Thank you for hanging on, Senator. Appreciate it. Yeah. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Hi there, it's Pat McDonald, back with you on Vermont Viewpoint, and my guest, Senator Andrew Perchlick. Senator, thanks for hanging on. Um, we have yeah. a question from Mac from Hyde Park. Go ahead, Mac, and thank you for staying with us. Okay, yeah. Um, good morning. Uh, what is the, is the um, are you guys doing about uh, ensuring that we have an adequate supply of electricity as mm-hmm. we transition away from fossil fuels, because ISO New England, the grid operator that that runs the grid for New England, is already warning us that in a in an extreme cold temperature situation in the winter, that they could run out of power. And so, as the demand increases, what what are you guys thinking about that? Yeah. It's definitely something we're working on, something that the Department of Public Service and the PUC who are going to be involved in the, the Clean Heat Standard definitely is aware of. Um, and this is, you know, this was a concern even before when we had increased electric use years ago and we were getting peaks that were very, very high. We So we were focused on electric efficiency to lower those peaks, but now we're looking at electrification causing peaks again. So there's a few things that, you know, ISO has a whole process to make sure there's enough power. That's why we still have a coal plant in Bow, New Hampshire. It doesn't run a lot, but we got to keep that coal plant there because on those really cold days, why we need the McNeil and Rygate power plants, why we need oil backup plants still. You know, we're hoping to get those, you know, cleaner over time, but we still need those power plants. But another thing we can do is, like, if there's going to be a lot more electricity for vehicles, make sure those are charging in the day when the when we have – you know, less power needed for homes because people are at work and you can use the solar because we're getting a lot more solar during the days when it's sunny that that those times charge the car. So just trying to manage the grid better. So it's what ISO is concerned about and anybody else that deals with electricity is the peaks more than just the total use. But it is something that we're aware of. The Department of Public Service testified that uh, they don't see a problem 
now, but they do see, like, in 10 years, we have to be aware. We have to do something now to think about that excess electricity need and that it can come in, uh, you know, uh, spikes. So if it's really, really cold and we have a lot of people heating with electricity plus people charging their cars, then how, how can we do it? How can we reduce load? Can we use storage? Can we have more local generation that can kick on during those times, which might have to be fossil fuels for, for a time, but I think we're going to try to switch as much of that to storage and have a diversity of resources so it's all one renewable, I think, is the main way we'll, we'll deal with that. But it's something that it's a good question and something we need to be on top of, and I'd say that we, we are uh, aware of that and working on it. That's great. Thank you, Senator, and thank you, Matt, for that question. Um, Senator, just a really quick one. Does the, um, does the study require public hearings so that there's, um, times and opportunities for the public to weigh in? Yeah, there is a public outreach component of it. Okay. I don't remember the details. No, that's okay. As long as it's there. The, yeah, the PUC is required to, to do that yeah. part of the stuff. You know, we had, and I think, I saw something maybe in the original email. The, the Office of Racial Equity did testify and had recommendations. That's another thing that I was proud that yes. the Appropriations Committee did because, unfortunately, uh, Director Davis came in and testified kind of late in the process of natural resources. So some of her recommendations were made in appropriations, and part of that was on on making sure we're we're doing the outreach yeah. in the best way. Yeah, I was very impressed by by the fact that you all changed it to – to make sure that that uh, her her concerns were addressed because um she's got a big job yeah. too and um yeah it was Definitely. it was good and she was very con- she seemed very concerned about the first draft that it would in fact impact uh, low income and uh, uh people in need so that was really good that you put that in there <clears throat> yeah we made those made those changes yeah. so, how yeah. much time do you have senator um cuz i could ask you to keep going forever <laughs> Sorry. I should probably go in the next, you know, five minutes. Okay. So could you explain to me the, the overall purpose of the credit system and then the default delivery agent? That's a confusing um, – Yeah, that's a weird one. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's overall important to think of this as a standard. It's a clean heat standard is what was the name last year. And it isn't something totally new. Like we have – a renewable energy portfolio standard now. So we have a standard and they have some of these similar things. I mean, they're regulated utilities, so it operates different. And there are other standards that are used, like the CAFE standards that people might be used to for miles per gallon. And it's important to realize when you set a standard, it's the government saying, here's the standard. You, the business community, you, the entities, find the best way to meet that standard. Instead of, and this is why it gets complicated, we could just, pass a tax like the house did a few years ago added a two cent per gallon tax that's a very simple people can understand it but the opposition was just as strong mm-hmm. as the opposition s5 this year people did not want a two cent right. tax it's very easy to understand so the fact that it was simple didn't help as far as getting people to, to like it and the senate didn't even take it up because the opposition was so strong so the, the clean heat credit is a way of saying, okay, you, the businesses, have to meet the standard of lowering the amount of fossil fuel we use for heating. How are you going to do that? And they, they could do any way they want that earns a credit. So that you have to develop the system of saying how much is a heat pump worth, you know, what what's the credit you would get for installing a heat pump versus uh, a new pellet boiler 
versus doing weatherization versus putting in biodiesel. So biodiesel is something we haven't talked about, but that's an easy transition mm-hmm. for somebody that heats with oil because you can start burning half, you know, switch to right. B50 and burn. You've just reduced your fossil fuels by half, but you really didn't have to do any equipment changes. And so oh, that's, that's a good thing. Of that. I like that. Yeah, and there's companies like Barnes are selling it now. Um, but that's part of the potential studies, like how much biodiesel can we really get? Where is it going to come from? And the, the, the design of the program has to figure this all out. Like, okay, how are we going to have a credit system? How are we going to decide what the value of a gallon of biodiesel versus heating with pellets? Because it's, it's tied to the greenhouse gas reduction requirements we have. So it's like, okay, which is, which is going to reduce it more? What's the value of all of that? So that's why you get this complicated structure mm-hmm. of a, a technology committee that's doing this and having these measures. So, like, whether you install heat pump or put insulation in your attic, those are measures, and then they have credits. And so the the some fuel dealers might want to say, like, okay, well, I'm, in an, I'm also going to offer my customers biodiesel or pellets, and then when they install a pellet boiler for a customer, they would get credits, and then they could take those credits and say, for the standard, oh, this is how I'm meeting the standard by by handing you these these credits that I earn from putting in a pellet stove. But others might want to say, you know, I just want to sell fossil fuel. That's what I've always done. I just want to do it. And then they they might just say, I want this delivery agent to do mm-hmm. the work. So they they might pay a fee. They say, like, okay, I'm just going to pay this fee for importing this fossil fuel. And then the default del- delivery agent would would figure out how to use that fee in a way. That's the most cost-effective way to, to lower the fossil fuel use. So, it's, and that that part I think of is kind of what we do with Efficiency Vermont. We have a default delivery agent. You pay your efficiency fee on your electric bill. The money goes to Efficiency Vermont. They figure what's the best, most cost-effective way of spending that money to reduce electricity use to make it more efficient. And we have a regulatory structure all around Efficiency Vermont and how they do that. It's very complicated if you were to just look at it but it's designed to to make sure it's done in the most affordable way. That's great, Senator. Um, we really appreciate your coming on. I know it's, you've yeah, got a transportation you. meeting going on right now. Um, I really appreciate um, your responses as well. I actually understood it, so thanks. Um, well, great. Well, like, thanks for doing the show and your the, the public service you have given Vermont. I appreciate that. and. And hope to talk to you again. Great. Thank you very much, Senator Andrew Perchlick from Washington County and a whole bunch of other places, which I didn't know about. So, <laughs> I love when, I love when legislators rattle off five or six towns. You know, I'm from, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm exhausted listening. So good for you. Okay. Like, we'll see day. you. Bye. Um, I also wanted to continue. Senator Bray is the um, lead sponsor on S5. And um, the bill was on the Senate floor. It passed, um, where's the numbers here, 18, 18 to 10. The bill passed, so it's on its way over to the House. Um, and I just thought I'd read what he said um, uh, about this whole bill and the process. Um, he introduced the bill on the floor, decrying all the misinformation in public debate. A vote for the bill, he says, will, uh, you're willing to explore savings, your constituents $6 billion, he claimed. That's one of the areas where people are, are asking questions because that $6 billion in savings refers to an estimate that it's about the global temperatures were held at 1.5 degree. 
according to the uh, Paris Climate Accord. So that's a little that's a little volatile, but um, they've honed in on six billion as a savings on this bill. He believes um, if legislators vote no, they're endorsing the status quo, which is unaffordable. He insists this bill is in the best interest of Vermonters. The public narrative around the bill is simply wrong, he says, and will continue to step out of the whirlwind of propaganda. We need to follow the uh, GWSA law. Um, it's about cost. It's about all the questions that actually were asked asked today, supply, the supply chain. Um, and so we're hoping very much that this bill will take the time to look at alternatives and uh, and provide costs. Um, it would uh, the bill as amended in appropriations, which is where Senator Perchlick, uh, one of his committee assignments, um, it would set the legislature on a two-year plan to address public concerns. Um, as Senator Bray put it, they are now agreeing to a full stop because a lot of people were confused and really pushed back. After the development of the plan, a new legislature in 2025 will then have to vote on the plan and pass it in order to move forward. The plan will be developed by the Public Utilities Corporation, working with the Department of Public Safety, Public Service, excuse me. Um, and there's a lot of work to do. Um, was interesting. He pointed to Vermont having the highest per capita CO2 emissions in New England, saying that uh, we're not as green as we think we are. And um, that's an interesting statement. I would like to certainly hear more about that. Um, so it's it's moving. It's um, over in the House, and we'll go through the same procedure that it went in the Senate, and we'll probably wind up in appropriations on the Senate's on the House side. Um, and if you have any questions, give us give me a call two four four one seven seven seven. I may not know the answer, but I will find it out for you. Uh, the other bill that I, I wanted to talk about, which I've got a few minutes here, is the um, independent school bill. Um, it, uh, there's a bill in the Senate, I mean, in the legislature house, was uh, tightening restrictions on independent schools who receive public tuition dollars under Vermont's historic town tuitioning system. Um, and it was actually being re- received very well, given some of the changes they made. But then... Last week, they put in um, a new provision that boggles my mind. Uh, the new provision was added the day before the committee was set to vote on it. The provision would disallow any sort of normal application process to play out before schools make enrollment decisions. Current rules prevent discriminatory behavior, but school still saw value in bringing students in for site visits before enrollment so they could begin planning how to best meet their needs. Um, so I don't understand the rationale for this. Um, it seems to me that um, if there is a um, if there is an issue with a student, the school would want to know. So from day one, he or she would be supported. Um, and it's just confusing to me. So I'm going to follow that. Um, hang on a second. We've got a caller. Annette? Hi, this is Pat McDonald. You're on the air. Good morning, Pat. This is Annette Smith with Vermonters for a Clean Environment. I know you, Annette. <laughs> I, I wanted to comment on that, uh, high, that Vermont has higher per capita yeah. CO2 emissions. It's kind of misleading. I mean, it... it 
if you look at the New England states, we all have very low CO2 emissions compared to other states. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there, there are plenty of charts and maps available. Our per capita emissions are far lower than New Mexico, Montana, North Dakota. It's, I mean, it's it's just it's it's minuscule the differences mm. between the New England states. And so, yes, Vermont's a little higher than Maine. It's more equivalent to Massachusetts and Connecticut. But uh, this is just playing games with statistics. So mm, interesting. Yeah. I would not have picked that up. Um, I well, was... when I heard, I've, heard, I've heard it repeatedly by the. It's the, one of the talking points right. of the proponents of the bill, and it's just not helpful to uh, uh, an understanding of what. I mean, uh, you know, we have higher per capita emissions because uh, people drive more and because New England burns oil. But other than that, uh, in, in terms of actual emissions, Vermont is way, way down at the bottom with Rhode Island and uh, the District of Columbia. Teeny, teeny, tiny amount of emissions. And then when you – so to heighten it, that's why they're claiming that the per capita is higher than in other New England states. Hmm. Well, we have our, our per capita, the number is so low that anything would make us look higher, right, on a percentage of, of the yeah. small amount of people we have here. Yeah. I mean, New Mexico, Oklahoma, I'm just looking at a map. There are so many states with higher per capita emissions. The worst ones are North Dakota, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, I wish we were at a place where facts mattered <laughs> and Great. unfortunately they don't, but, uh, it's still important for people to understand, uh, some of these talking points and how they have been, uh, manipulating data in a way to make the case that this clean heat standard is somehow good policy, which as you heard from me last right, week, right. it is not. Right. So. Yep, I, I, there's a lot of, I'm hoping all the, everybody pro and con will be active with this, uh, um, study committee because, um, this is the opportunity to, to put it on record. Yeah, that's unfortunate though because it's not enough time for the Public Utility Commission to do everything that's in the bill. Mm. They gotta create two subcommittees, they have to do a life cycle analysis. Those two subcommittees actually already exist at the Climate Council. The life cycle analysis is already being done by ANR. It's gonna come at a cost of one point seven million dollars. Mm. It's going to overwhelm the PUC with all new people participating in a the process. They're supposed to hold public workshops. I mean, Secretary Moore of the Agency of Natural Resources testified on this yesterday to the House Energy and Environment Committee. This is just not realistic. Oh. Ask the PUC to do or tell them to to right. do what's in this bill with, by, in the amount of time. So, yeah, sure, pile on. Everybody can go play at the PUC, but I feel bad for them that they're being pushed to do this and also that so much money is being spent where the state has so many needs otherwise. Well, I think they're even, they were given some additional s- staffing and money, but that takes time as well to find the right staff and get them up to speed. So, yeah, both Department of Public Service and yep. PUC are expected to hire new people. Right. Uh, A&R is ha- having trouble hiring people. The workforce just isn't there for even these kinds of mm-hmm. things. But it's $1.7 million. It's, ju- it's not chump change in this economy. <sighs> a lot of good use that we, you know, and it's redundant mm-hmm. to what the Climate Council's already doing. That's great. Thank you very much, Annette, for calling in. You're That's welcome. Really cool. I just uh, caught that factoid, and I thought, well, okay. <laughs> Good for you. you got to <laughs> speak up. I just looked it up yesterday, refreshed my memory <laughs> on it, so there you yeah. go. Thank you, Annette. I appreciate Thank you, it. Pat. Thanks. Thanks.
All right, uh, we have Steve from Ferrisburg. I couldn't read that. Steve, um, what's your question or comment? Can you hear me okay? I, I certainly can. Go right ahead. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, I wrote an email to uh, Chris Bray's committee, and, and uh, Senator Perchlick was the only one yep. uh, who responded to yep. me, so I appreciated that. But I want to make a comment about this process. Uh, the PUC has spent $10 million over the last five years, five or six years, studying all these issues, and the legislature is ignoring their studies. Their studies show that Efficiency Vermont's efficiency portfolio is by far the cheapest way to avoid carbon emissions, and solar panels are by far the most expensive way. Hmm. Uh, and to give you the number, for uh, every ton of carbon saved, you save $1,400 through efficiency and conservation. But to save a ton of carbon with solar panels, it ranges up as far as $9,000 per ton for 5KW solar panel installations. That's from a chart on the PUC's 21 report to the legislature. Hmm. The PUC has already told the legislature the best way forward and the legislature is ignoring it by saying we're going to use solar panels and heat pumps to fix this and we're going to charge the 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 fuel industry that keeps us warm uh in order to do that so well i think um, we're going to run out of time here steve um but um i think the answer is get very involved in this study committee and make sure everything's on the table um and maybe maybe they'll hear you I'd encourage people to read Vermont Daily Chronicle. I should have a piece coming out in it today. Oh, great. Thank you kindly. We appreciate it. I've got to end the show right now, but thank you all for your interest. Um, this is a huge bill. I'm so glad they changed it to a study. Um, and let's, uh, let's move forward together. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.